Well, our scripture lesson this evening, or at least our jumping off point, one that we'll come, come to, refer to during this sermon, is Romans 9. We're going to read this evening verses 6 through 29. This is God's holy word. This inspired the Apostle Paul to write, so even as we have had the privilege of seeing God's word this evening, we now read it and I call your attention to the written word of God as we seek to learn his will for us and his revelation of himself to us as we tonight read again Romans 9 verses 6 through 29. Let's attend with reverence to the word of God. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. For us this evening, may he bless its reading and its proclamation as we worship him 
tonight. And apologize for my mispronouncing of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is the Lord of Hosts, which is a word that means that God is the, the Lord of Armies, as he is particularly thinking of the heavenly host. But as we continue studying in the evening time here what Presbyterians believe by looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come to the topic of God's eternal decrees, the third chapter of the Westminster Confession. Uh, this is one of the great distinctives, if you will, of Reformed theology. The deep reverence that Reformed theology has for the sovereignty of God and uh, how that affects what we see and how we understand salvation works, for example. Indeed, how we understand everything works in Scripture. As we find that Scripture compels us to accept that God is in ultimate control over not just some things, but over all things. And the Confession puts it like this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So uh, sometimes in our flesh we like to uh, separate these things out and say, uh, if God is in control of all things, doesn't that mean that we're all just puppets? But the Bible really doesn't have a problem with presenting us with, with both notions, that God is in control of all things, and you and I also have free will. Now, as we get to talking about the doctrine of sin and things like that later uh, in, this, uh, in this series, when we talk about the fall and things like that, we will notice that... Uh, Free will has, of course, its parameters. If you think of it as kind of like the bowling alley when children bowl and they put the bumpers up on the side there so that, so that the bowling ball can't go into the gutter. We do have bumpers up that keep us from going too far one direction or another. I have free will, but contrary to what many people think today, I can't will myself to be something that I purely am not. I can't just will myself to be a dinosaur, no matter how much I wanted to be one when I was in second grade. Uh, and I'm very grateful that I didn't grow up now when I might have had parents who would say, well, maybe you are a dinosaur, and they'd be starting my transition. <laughs> but, but in any case, very glad that I'm a human and not a dinosaur today. Uh, but... Uh, certainly our free will does not extend to that, and so when it comes to the fact that we are by nature sinners, our free will does not extend to us being able to will to be something other than a sinner, apart from God changing our will and uh, intervening. But we here, see here, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet that doesn't make him responsible, doesn't make him the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, uh, nor is there a liberty of contingency or second causes taken away. All that means is that there are, are such things as secondary causes, things that God uses to uh, bring about his will. And uh, people have free will, 
And God uses that free will, their own choices, to bring about exactly what he intended to happen. So, saying that nothing can happen apart from God's sovereignly deciding to make it happen. But he does not force anyone to sin at the same time. But he does use our choices to sin, sinlessly. So you'll sometimes hear a Reformed theologian saying, God uses sin sinlessly. So without there being any sin in him, he uses our sins for his good purposes. So that uh, we can be told in Romans 8.28 that not just some things, but all things, even our sins, even the sins of others against us, and, uh, work together for our ultimate good. He righteously causes, God righteously causes, all things to work together for the good of his people, for his glory ultimately. We make free will decisions of our own accord, and he uses them, he has even ordained them, to carry out his plan. That's how in complete control God is. Actually, I don't even need to, to say how in complete control, because if it's complete control, it's complete, right? Uh, sometimes people will say, God is so sovereign, he can do this. Well, if God is sovereign, then of course, he's truly sovereign, and he has uh, no limits on what he can do with the things that he's made. But it's not merely that he looks into the future and sees the decisions that you or I will make and plans accordingly. Uh, there uh, was a doctrine that I ran into when I was in seminary. It was a very uh, aberrant doctrine. It's a tragic doctrine that many have latched onto, known as process theology. And in this view, God is constantly changing his plan according to the decisions that we make so as to bring about the same end that he intended from the beginning. So God knows the purpose and the, the end that he wants to reach, the goal he wants to reach, and he knows uh, what he set in motion from the beginning, but he doesn't see have any control over our decisions or anything like that, and so he's, he's constantly adjusting the plan so that the end goal will happen no matter what we decide. Well, if that's what God does, as I even said back then in my younger days in seminary, I, I, it struck me that that God that was being presented by process theology was not a good shepherd. He was an inept shepherd. He was not shepherding the sheep into the corral. He was moving the corral in front of them, no matter which direction they went. Well, the confession says of that kind of thinking, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. So in other words, God is smart enough to understand everything that could possibly happen no matter what. It says, yet he hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So our testimony says it is God's decree which by itself completely determines the course of history not the course of history that determines God's decree. That brings us then to the sticking point that so many people over the centuries have objected concerning what we see about this teaching of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God from Scripture, where the confession says in the next three paragraphs, this will be the third, fourth, and fifth paragraphs of its third chapter, by the decree of God for the manifestation 
of his glory. Some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. To many people, that makes God sound mean. How could he not save everyone? They don't usually have a problem with the angel part of that. That you know, There are some fallen angels and therefore ordained to everlasting destruction. Uh, but and that he's confirmed other angels in their righteousness, and so they won't be foreordained to everlasting destruction. Well, they have a problem with the thought that human beings aren't all going to be saved. But the confession goes on and says, These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. God will save the exact number of people he intends to save, and that's it. So it goes on, it says, Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid. So that's Ephesians 1. According to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love alone, without any foresight of faith or good works. So he didn't look in the future and say, there's somebody who will believe or who is a nice person. And so I want him or I want her for my kingdom. No. Not because of any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious presence. So God chose some for salvation, because of absolutely nothing about them. Just his own good pleasure and the secret counsel of his will. We don't understand this. It's beyond our understanding and it's kept secret from us. So that's what we read about in Romans 9 this evening. God, for his own glory, ordained that a human race who would use their own free will to rebel against him would not all perish because of that choice to rebel. He's going to rescue some of them from their own sinfulness. Though we all deserve to perish forever, to be cast away from his glorious presence. Rather, he has chosen to rescue some of those miserable sinners and redeem them from that condition of sin and change them, give them a new heart so that they actually have a will to love him. To make them suitable, to change them, to make them suitable for his kingdom. And this is for no reason other than that he saw fit to do it. Again, he didn't look into the future and see something worth saving in any of us. He didn't look at Daniel in the, from the future and say, Ah, that's somebody I like. He just decided to save me. He wasn't compelled to save me by something about me. He ordained the fall so that his glory could be seen. And we see that in Romans 9 as well. Uh, And we see that that he ordained the fall. His his glory could be seen in two ways. That he is the righteous, holy, and just God who punishes sinners. Therefore, many are cast away from him and perish eternally. Verse 22 of Romans 9. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Notice they're vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So all of mankind is under sin, as we'll see here in a little bit, and 
Uh, He has rescued some from it, and he's chosen not to rescue all, so he's passed over others. And so they're prepared for destruction. Many are cast away and perish eternally, which is what we all deserve. But then secondly, God shows his glory in that he is merciful and loving. So loving that he loved us even when we hated him. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5 that Christ died for us while we were still ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. We were hostile in mind to him. It's not hard to love someone who loves you and treats you well. How easy is it to love someone who annoys you? Or who disrespects you? What about if they do it a lot? Somebody who clearly hates you. Not easy to love such people. In our natural state, we don't just annoy God. And we don't stop at dishonoring Him. We hate Him. And He still loved us enough to save us. He chose to love us. We would never know that if God had not both ordained the fall and elected some for salvation. So as he says in verse 23 of Romans 9, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. And of course, Christ commands us to imitate the love of God by loving even our enemies. You and I don't know who God's elect are. Uh, many who are our enemies today just as the Apostle Paul was once an enemy of the church, maybe our brothers and sisters tomorrow. Jesus said that's how we know that we belong to him, if we're able to love our enemies. If we love only those against whom we have no reason to be angry or offended, well, we're no different, Jesus says, than the pagans. It's when we love even those who offend us that we show that we're like Christ. Because he even died for enemies and sinners. In Ephesians 1, we're told, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So notice there is a result of that, of our sanctification. But Paul says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I remember one time turning on the TV many years ago and seeing a, a messianic Jewish rabbi preaching on Ephesians 1, and he stopped and said, I know that this offends so many people, but beloved, just accept this is what God's word tells us. God has elected not everyone but some for eternal life from before the foundation of the world. And you can't have it unless God has elected you. So the confession next tells us, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. So it's not just that God elected us and then uh, dropped his word into our brains or something like that. He gave means, and the typical means, of course, is the preaching of the gospel. So wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ. So you're 
fallen in Adam, but we're redeemed by Christ. The Holy Spirit actually works to effectually call us. They are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit working in due season. So at whatever time God uh, makes it happen in our life, so eternally He elects, but then temp- temporally, within time, uh, these things happen. So they are uh, effectually called in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So again, it's not as if God uh, elected a few so that at least he'd have somebody in his kingdom and then said, and others can make the choice. No, uh, we don't have the moral power to make the choice. We don't want to make that choice when we're left in our sins. We reject God for who he is. Now we'll cover these topics of redemption and adoption and effectual calling and so on uh, in more detail, Lord willing, in the future as we go through and the confession covers them more, more closely. But just note that God has chosen to use secondary means in bringing his elect to himself. He doesn't just plan, uh, plan for our salvation and then, as I said, drop that knowledge into our heads. He primarily uses the preaching of the word to convict the elect, to bring them to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, as in Romans nine or Romans ten, rather, Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And he uses that preaching of the word to grow us in Christ likeness. That's why preaching has such a prominent position in godly churches. That's boring to the rest of the world. But in a church that really loves Christ, preaching is going to be central. Now, this doctrine of election offends a lot of people, as I've said. Because in our pride, we can't stand the idea that none of us would, of our own free will, choose God. But that's the reality. That's what Scripture tells us. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. What is a deceitful and desperately wicked heart going to think of the true God, who is truth, and who is godliness, who is righteousness, who is holy? Genesis 6.5 tells us that God looked on the hearts of men and saw that every thought was only evil continually. In Romans 3.10-18, Paul cites Psalm 14 saying that none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. That's what we're like in our natural state. We don't understand. We don't seek God. You'll see people saying, well, certainly I see others seeking God all around me. I believe it was Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages who who said, no, what you see is people seeking benefits that you know they can only get from Christ. But they're seeking those benefits while they're fleeing as far and as fast from Christ as they can. We'll hear people say, well, no, I love God. But then they'll also say, but my God would never send anyone to hell. Or my God wouldn't do this, or my God does that. And they're presenting to you a God other than the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. So the God who's real, the one who reveals himself in Scripture, they don't love. They're hating and rejecting him. That's our natural state. That's what all of us would be like had God not changed our hearts. We don't seek God until he first seeks and finds us. As John says, we love him because he first loved us. In our sinfulness, we actually accuse God and say, well, how dare you not save everyone? But we 
see that those whom he elects don't actually deserve it. So the real question should be, how could he have bothered to save anyone? Why does he do this? Why did he save even me? Wretched sinner that I am. The Apostle Paul noted that wonder that he would save even me after I had persecuted his church. Well, Paul answers this in Romans 9, as we read this evening, stating, as we start in verse 14 and read on through verse 21, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So some people are accusing God of unrighteousness. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In Exodus 33, there he tells Moses, it's my choice. I'll choose to have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. It's his sovereign choice. And so Paul goes on and says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So this is to the glory of God that I don't have the will to save myself or to get saved. But God's will takes care of that. It's not of him who runs. It's not by our works that we're saved. But it's simply by God who shows mercy. And then he looks at the flip side of it in verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. During Exodus 9, he says that. And so we see there that Pharaoh's heart was hardened over and over again. And in Exodus, we find that sometimes it will say that God hardened his heart, and other times it will say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And both are true. It wasn't like Pharaoh, against his will, hardened his heart, but this was ordained by God. And why? So that God could show his glory through this, this miraculous rescue after the ten plagues in Egypt, so that no one could mistake that the rescue of Israel was by God's hand and not by man's hand. As Paul says, starting in verse 18 here, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. It's all of God. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So in other words, people would ask Paul, well, if God is sovereign over these things, then why does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? But of course, when he confirms us in our sins sovereignly, it's, it's a confirming something that we already want. But Paul answers it in a little different way. He says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Well, who do you think you are to question what God has done? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Can't a potter do whatever he wants with the clay that he's got in front of him and make a beautiful vase out of one part of it and a garbage pail out of the other part? The confession, therefore, states the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will. That's a way of saying we don't understand why, but this is what he's done. God was pleased, and we know he's righteous, so it's a righteous reason. Whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So in other words, 
the praise of God's glorious justice. The Lord has determined all of mankind has fallen into sin here. I'm going to rescue some and not all. We don't know why he saves those which he does save and doesn't save another. But it, we do know it's to the praise of his glorious justice. That's what's Paul, what Paul's talking about in verses uh, 22 through 24 when he says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. If we are not saved by God's eternal decree, if it were left up to us, then we could say if we were saved, well, I must have been saved because I was good enough and I was smart enough. I'm sad to say that many people's presentation of the gospel sounds like that. If you were just as smart as I am, you too would choose Jesus. If you were just as nice a person as I am, you too would want to be like Jesus. But Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen sixteen, You didn't choose me, I chose you. So being elect of God is not a point of pride, it's a point of humility. I was unworthy. And as unworthy as anyone else. And yet he chose me. That should make us humble in the face of God and also when we see the lost and say, that's what I would be like if God had not elected to change my heart. And since we don't know which of those lost might be saved by God, we preach the gospel to all of them. We don't look at them as our enemies so much as prisoners of war of our enemy. People who need to be liberated. People worthy of our love. Of our pity. So the confession cautions us. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So in other words, it's possible to be assured that you're truly saved. And so we handle this with care so that that can be seen. And people will know that if I'm truly saved, I can't be lost because it was of God and not of me. So they say, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. If you sincerely believe and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could not have done that of your own will, your own ability, your own knowledge, your own goodness. So you have assurance that if you fail in any of those things, you haven't lost your salvation. You have assurance that your faith came from God. And what God does, He does perfectly. If it depended on your good works, well, you could mess it up. You could lose your standing before God. But since it depends on God's sovereign choice and power, you cannot lose it. As Jesus says to the Father in His great high priestly prayer, no one has snatched them out of my hand. That's the joy that you can have in this knowledge of God's eternal decrees. So take joy in it. Recognize that it glorifies God, both that He is the just punisher of sin and the loving justifier of many. Well, let's pray.
The Sovereign Lord, we thank you for decreeing the salvation of your elect. We pray that you would give us assurance of our election as we grow in righteousness, as we become more Christ-like. So we pray that you would grow us in the likeness of Christ, that each day we might see more and more that we truly do belong to him, and that we have a solid and eternal standing before you as your redeemed children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.